0: Chapter 27 is trauma overview and the trauma
1: patient and the trauma system. So an introduction, trauma makes up a significant percentage of the calls to which pre-hospital personnel respond. And recognizing the extent of injury is critical to making decisions to giving trauma patients the best chance of survival. So the kinetics of trauma, mechanism of injury would Previously talked about is how the person is injured, the forces that that body went through that caused those injuries. The science of analyzing mechanisms of injury is known as the kinetics of trauma. and Kinetics is the branch of mechanics dealing with the movement of bodies. Understanding kinetics is helpful in understanding mechanism of injuries.
0: So kinetic energy is the energy contained
1: in a moving body and the amount of kinetic energy a moving body contains. There's two factors that make up or help us determine how much kinetic energy was applied to that body. Those two factors are the weight and the speed. And the formula to determine kinetic energy is mass times velocity squared divided by two. So based on that formula, we know that velocity is going to be the larger factor in determining kinetic energy. And it makes perfect sense. Uh, a bullet has a lot less mass than, a, say, somebody getting uh, a rock thrown at them. But that bullet is traveling at a much faster speed. So even though it weighs a fraction of as much as that rock does, it's going to have a much more kinetic energy than that rock does velocity is the more significant factor in determining the amounts of kinetic energy and when we talk about kinetic energy we're talking about speed that is involved in things like motor vehicle collisions and it's also involved in penetrating trauma such as gunshot wounds stabbings etc so acceleration deceleration is the law of inertia states that a body at rest will remain at rest and a body in motion will remain in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. So that includes the, the patient traveling inside that car. If the car hits a tree, that body is going to continue to move inside that vehicle until it meets an outside force, hopefully the seatbelt. And the faster in, in the change of speed, the either acceleration or in many cases it's deceleration, how fast that car comes to a complete stop results in more force extended, exerted. Energy changes form and direction, energy travels in a straight line unless it meets interference. And this includes the human body during MVCs, falls, and
0: penetrating trauma again.
1: Impacts. So if we're dealing with a MVC, there's at least three impacts that occur in every MVC to one patient. We have the vehicle collision, the vehicle striking another vehicle, a tree, whatever the case may be. Again, the car, that initial impact, that body inside that vehicle is going to continue in that straight line that it was traveling until it meets some type of interference. That would be the body impact. And the organ collision is once that body comes to a stop, the seatbelt catches the body, stops the body, the organs inside the body are going to continue moving forward until they meet resistance. And that their resistance is going to be slapping up against thoracic cavity inside the skull, the walls of the abdomen. And energy is absorbed during each impact. The organ collision is not going to be as much energy as the vehicle collision because a lot of that energy has already been absorbed as it worked its way down. And there also can be multiple impacts of each type, just depending on what type of collision we're dealing with. And the more energy that is dissipated and absorbed by the vehicle or other objects, the less energy the body absorbs. So things like crumple zones, seat belts, airbags, all of that is designed to absorb and dissipate some of that energy before it actually reaches the patient. So again, the three types of impacts, we got our collisions, we have the vehicle collision. We have our car here who's traveling in a straight line and hit a tree head on, that's that vehicle collision. Inside the vehicle, we're gonna have the body collision. Vehicle has come to a stop, the body inside is gonna continue to move in a straight line until it strikes against an object. In this case, he wasn't restrained, he hits the steering wheel, breaking ribs, causing injuries. That's the second type of collision, the body collision, and then that third type of collision is going to be the organ collision. Once the body comes to rest, the organs are going to continue to move forward until they, in this case, their chest, strike against that thoracic cavity and chest wall. So organs continue to move forward, strike against that skull, chest, and abdomen, causing additional internal damage. Mechanisms of injury. Remember, it's the mechanism of injury. The MOI provides a suspicion of injury, not an accurate indicator of injury. So the mechanism of injury is just kind of heighten our suspicion of where the patient's going to be injured at and how bad the patient is going to be injured as well. It's going to take a full assessment to determine if our suspicions are correct or not. So when we're dealing with wrecks, for example, You should make every effort to evaluate the MOI, if at all possible. So looking at the vehicles for damage, where the damage is located at, did airbags deploy, is there intrusion into the vehicle, did the steering wheel get bent, whatever the case may be. For falls, for example, we need to try to determine the height of the fall, the landing area, was it grass, concrete, water, which part of the patient's body hit first, and so forth. Again, the mechanism of injury is just giving us an index of suspicion. We have to do a complete thorough assessment to determine if the patient is actually injured. Vehicle collisions have a high suspicion of injury when there is, so these are considered a pretty significant mechanism of injuries. Again, there's a death of another vehicle occupant. We've talked about this, there there's enough forces that occurred inside that vehicle to kill a patient The other patient that was in the vehicle with that patient went through very similar forces. If the wreck was severe enough to cause altered mental status in the patient, if there was intrusion over 12 inches of the occupant side inside the cab of the vehicle, if there was over 12 inches of intrusion, that's a significant impact. Anytime there is an ejection from a vehicle, the ejected patient is a serious mechanism of injury or if vehicle telemetry data consi- are consistent with a high risk injury. Now we don't normally have access to vehicle telemetry data. But one big exception is if OnStar calls 911 to dispatch, say, hey, we got to report that one of the vehicles got in a collision. OnStar may have some of that telemetry data. They can tell us how fast they were going, whether the patient was wearing a seatbelt or not, did airbags deploy, et cetera. So types of impacts. For an MVC, we can have frontal collisions head-on, lateral collisions, T-bones, rotational where after the vehicle was struck, it spins, rear end collisions, count
0: for 9%.
1: So frontal impacts. During a frontal collision, again, the vehicle that the patient in strikes an object head-on. So the occupant is traveling at the same speed as the vehicle. The driver of the vehicle, if they are unrestrained, are going to have typically one or two types of injury patterns. They're either going to go up and over the steering wheel or down and under. If it's an up and over the steering wheel, it's going to cause injuries to the head, neck, chest, abdomen, and likely going to cause ejection. If it's a down and under the steering wheel, we're gonna see injuries to the knees, lower extremities, femurs, pelvis, hips,
0: and spine as well.
1: So here we see a frontal impact just by looking at the vehicle from what I can see, it does look like moderate front end damage to that vehicle. Again, so unrestrained frontal collision, the driver is going to have either an up and over or down and none. So they're going to continue forward until they strike something. The head's likely going to hit off the windshield, chest is going to go off the steering wheel. From there, that inertia is either going to carry them up and over, head goes through the windshield, neck is getting rocked back. Uh, also, I have to worry about glass. And again, the chest and pelvis are all making contact with that steering wheel as well. Other type of injury <laughs> of impact indicator is going to be the down and under. Knee strikes the dashboard is likely going to cause pelvic fractures, femur fractures, and the back is still, spine is still going to be possibly damaged as well. So again, looking assessing that mechanism of injury, we need to look at an inside the vehicle as well. Looking at here, we can see that steering wheel looks like it's starting to collapse and is disformed. That's a significant indicator, indicating a significant mechanism of injury if we see that.
0: Another thing that can
1: occur from an unrestrained driver is known as the paper bag syndrome. So patient is driving, they see something pull out in front of them or they realize they're about to get in a car crash. Their natural response is to gasp, take a big, deep breath and hold their breath. Now, when their their chest hits that steering wheel, their epiglottis is closed because they're holding their breath and their lungs are filled with air. So it's just like blowing into a paper bag and then slapping it. It's going to pop. And in this case, lung tissue is going to rupture. So again, examples of mechanism of impact associated with frontal injury. So in this case, patients slid forward, their knees struck the dash. That can cause injury to the knee there. can also cause hip and pelvic fractures as well as that energy gets transferred up. Kind of the same thing right here. Knee stripes. They're also only getting thrown forward. The patient with just wearing a lap belt, which you don't really see too much anymore. But body... Lower half stayed stationary, but the front end slashed, slammed into the dashboard.
0: For rear impacts, initially the head and neck are whipped
1: backwards. And a properly adjusted headrest and seatbelt can help reduce uh, injury. And that is the main purpose of a headrest. It's a safety feature, supposed to help your head from getting whiplash as bad. After that initial rocking and throwing backwards, depending on what happens after that, patient can also get thrown forward as well. And again, if under strain, they can go up and over or down and under.
0: There is a major
1: uh, rear-end collision with major damage to it. So this is a four-door vehicle and that rear end collision pushed the back of the vehicle all the way pretty much to the B post right there. So that whoever's in the back seat is probably dead for sure. So the effects of driving, not wearing a seatbelt, again, the patient initially is going to get thrown backwards, no headrest, gonna have some neck whiplash. And then the occupant moves forward, causing impacts to the head and chest as well. Lateral impacts may be injuries to the head, neck, chest, abdomen, pelvis, and extremities. When we're looking at T-bone collisions, knowing where the patient was sitting is going to be pretty important as well. And that goes for all MVCs, but were they on the side that took the T-bone or were they on the opposite side that received the impact? So where's the damage to the doors at compared to where the patient was sitting at? Again, example of a lateral impact T-bone type of collision doesn't appear to be too significant amounts of damage to the side. You notice this vehicle also has curtain airbags that deploy to help with their heads uh, smack in the side of the vehicle or the windows. And again, knowing where that patient sit- was sitting at compared to where the vehicle was impacted at is going to be important for us to know.
0: Rotational or rollover. These injury patterns
1: are less predictable and in rollover collisions there are multiple impacts and changes in direction. So every time that vehicle rolls over and strikes the ground that's a different uh, collision that's occurring. So for rollovers especially multi-system trauma where more than one body system is involved is very common. And then rollovers, if the occupant is unrestrained, ejection is common. And then we also have to worry about a patient has to worry about if they were ejected from a rolling vehicle. Now their vehicle can come and roll over
0: on top of them as well. So a rotational impact would pitch the vehicle was struck and then spun. And then here we have a rollover.
1: Trying to ask. Bystanders, the patient try to determine how many times it rolled. We need to try to do that as well, or we can estimate by looking at the damage as well. So oftentimes it's obvious if it's rolled multiple times. Vehicle in this case, it doesn't look like it rolled multiple times. It looks like pretty minor damage
0: comparatively. Again,
1: unrestrained occupant inside a rollover vehicle. Every time that vehicle turns over, the occupant is getting bounced around that vehicle. So there's multiple
0: collisions with each impact. Vehicle pedestrian collisions. The extent of
1: the injury is gonna depend on things like the vehicle speed. What part of the pedestrian's body was struck first? How far was the pedestrian thrown after the collision? Probably the least important is the surface that the pedestrian landed on. If they were going very fast and were struck hard, it really doesn't matter what they were landed on, more likely. Body part that struck the ground first. And because of size differences, the injury pattern is going to be different on a kid and an adult. Taller adults that were struck by a car, we're going to see more lower extremity injuries. Uh, compared to, and they are likely to get thrown over or pushed out, compared to a smaller kid, they're probably going to get actually all in the chest head, and
0: they're probably going down under the bar.
1: So restraints, save lives are important to use, but they can also have a distinct injury pattern as well. The benefits of restraints outweigh the risks, but they are associated with certain injuries that must be suspected. The injury is more likely if light belts and shoulder belts are not positioned properly.
0: Hang on one second. Airbags, again,
1: determining if airbags deployed, which airbags, was it just the front airbags or the curtain airbags deployed, whatever the case might be. But those airbags are not designed to work on multiple collisions. They're going to inflate real quick, take the brunt of that force, and then they're deflating. So if there's multiple impacts like rollovers, etc., after that first impact, airbags are not going to be very beneficial. So here you can see those red marks from where that patient was wearing a seatbelt. So again, anything under that seatbelt does have the potential of being injured. So again, it's just something to note, something to observe for. And you can see down here was a lap belt where it got a hold of the patient. But again, that did cause injuries, but if it wasn't for that lap belt, very good possibility that patient could have been ejected. Considerations for infants and kids. Head and neck are not secured. It's important that kids are properly restrained in their car seat. If they're under the age of one, they should always be in rear-facing car seats. The head can snap forward, straining the neck. Spinal cord injuries can occur because of the stretching, even without injury to the vertebrae. So just because the vertebrae aren't fractured, aren't broken, doesn't mean that a kid doesn't have a spinal injury. Again, there can be stretching and pulling, doesn't fracture anything, but can still cause a spinal cord injury. And car seats are only designed to work in the rear of a,
0: a vehicle. Motorcycle collisions. Helmet use is a significant factor in reducing morbidity and mortality,
1: For motorcycle collision, impacts can be head-on or angular, and many will involve ejection. If it's a serious wreck, they're probably coming separated from their motorcycle. Laying the bike down, again, where they intentionally put the bike in a skid to avoid a collision, or if they're even ejected, can result in severe abrasions and burns, and we refer to this as road rash, where the pavement just scrapes off that layer of skin, outer layer of skin. And things like proper leather, uh, leather clothing and boots do help protect from injuries, specifically things like road rash. The leather allows them to slide across instead of it tearing up their skin. Motorcycle collisions, again, are typically a pretty significant mechanism of injury. Uh, multi-systems trauma is pretty common with it as well.
0: There's an example of soft tissue injury from
1: a motorcycle collision where the patient was not wearing the helmet. You can see how badly damaged he is from about the bridge of his nose. Up.
0: ATVs, all-terrain vehicles. Vehicles are powerful, but they're typically unstable. They're easily tipped. And similar
1: to that of a motorcycle that they're not restrained to them in many cases. Now, some of the ATVs, the side-by-sides, there are seatbelts, row cages and stuff like that. But a traditional four-wheeler, if they get in a serious wreck, they're probably becoming separated from the four-wheeler.
0: Again, they're typically powerful, can be very quick, and they are pretty unstable as well. Severity of
1: trauma depends on a few factors. Biggest factors is going to be the distance of the fall. How far did the patient fall? The surface that the patient landed on and which part of their body impacted the ground first. And for an adult patient, a significant or a severe fall is a fall over 20 feet. For kiddos, it's over 10 feet or
0: a fall that's two to three times the height of the child. If the patient landed feet first,
1: where we expect to see injuries at? We're gonna see injuries to the lower extremities. Not only that, we're probably gonna see injuries to the spine as well. Patients are gonna be, be very prone to uh, those fractures that as it lands, compression fractures, the spine compresses on top of each other, the vertebrae compresses on top of each other, and then breaks. Also see injuries to the internal organs, And as a patient lands, if he doesn't stick the landing, they're probably going to fall forward or back. They may stick their arms out to try to catch them. That can cause wrist and elbow injuries as well. So again, we have lower leg extremities. That energy is going to get transferred up. So we can have fractures in the feet all the way up the legs, hip fractures, pelvic fractures, and we may see those compression fractures in that spine as well.
0: Head-first falls, we're going to see
1: upper extremity injuries, obviously head, neck injuries, and chest, spine, even pelvis injuries may occur as well.
0: Penetrating injuries,
1: where an object penetrates the body. Any of these objects can include knives, bullets, arrows, nails. If it enters the body or penetrates the body, it's a penetrating injury. And again, not so much the size of the object, but it's the kinetic energy is going to predict the amount of damage that is going to occur. And for penetrating injuries, we classify them as low, medium, or high-velocity penetrations.
0: So, uh, and
1: we'll talk more about this coming up. But we have, with higher velocity weapons, we have cavitation that's occurring as well. So obviously there's going to be injury that direct path of that bullet. Wherever that bullet touches and passes through, there's going to be damage. But since the bullet is traveling at such a high velocity, there's going to be a pressure wave that's following it. As that pressure wave enters through that body as well, it's going to expand, causing further damage. From just the path of the bullet. It can rupture hollow organs. It can lacerate solid organs uh, just
0: because of that pressure wave.
1: So, low velocity penetrating injuries, these include things like knives or similar objects. Again, not a lot of velocity behind it. Biggest concern for low velocity is going to be. let's say the length of the blade for a static. Can include defensive slash wounds. And again, the length of the object or the blade provides clues to the injury. So if if the knife is still on scene and we can estimate the blade length, we need to do so. Medium to high velocity. Medium velocity includes pellets, bullets, shotguns, handguns are generally considered medium velocity. When we're dealing with shotgun wounds, they can result in multiple penetrations depending on what type of ammo. Uh, It may be dozens if it was say birdshot, it may be just a few if it was buckshot or whatever the case may be. High velocity
0: weapons include rifles.
1: And damages to the patient is gonna be determined by the trajectory of the bullet and that dissipation of energy.
0: Trajectory is the path
1: or motion of the projectile during its travel, and the dissipation of energy is the way energy is transferred to the human body from the forces that are acting on it. Trajectory means the path that it took, how it entered and exited the body. So for dissipation of energy, there's things that affect that dissipation of energy. Things like the drag of the bullet, which is the factors that slow the bullet. Wind resistance is going to be dragged. So that bullet, as soon as it's fired out, it's going to start meeting that wind resistance, and it's going to slowly start slowing that bullet down. Another factor is going to be the profile, which is the impact point of the bullet. Was the bullet still spiraling? when it went through the patient, or was it tumbling when it went through the patient as well? Cavitation is the the cavity in the body tissue that is formed by a pressure wave. And fragmentation, bullet may break up into smaller fragments. If it's a hollow point bullet, they're designed to fragment or mushroom as they enter the, the patient to prevent them from going through the body. Cavitation of pressure waves. Here is a bullet shot into ballistic gel. You can see the bullet exiting right here. So and you can see how much larger that pressure wave is compared to the size of that bullet. Again, you can see it right here as well. Bullet travels through. That's going to do direct injury. But that pressure wave behind it is pushing everything inside that body away from the bullet path that can cause damage as well.
0: Fragmentation
1: and profile. Again, hollow point designed to mushroom or to break free. Profile, again, is how this, when it enters the body, what is the bullet doing? Is it still a spiraling, traveling in a straight line? Or did something strike it or did it nick something, causing it to tumble and enter the body?
0: So, gunshot wounds.
1: GSWs, 90% of fatal wounds involve the head, thorax, or abdomen. And gunshot wounds to the head can result in explosive energy with brain suffering, severe compression, and energy injury. So that cavitation also helps us ex- explain why exit wounds are typically and traditionally larger than entrance wounds. That exit wound gets blown out larger because that pressure wave is traveling through it as well. Gunshot wounds to the chest. Lung tissue is relatively tolerant. Uh, May have pneumothoraxes, et cetera, and so forth. But if a great vessel or the heart is touched or injured at all, it's going to be a very critical situation for the patient. Gunshot wounds to the abdomen can result in massive bleeding from solid organs, emptying of hollow of the contents from hollow organs into the abdominal cavity, both of which can be life-threatening. And gunshot wounds to the extremities can result in damage to muscle, blood vessels, and bone. Bone fragments may, may rupture, break free, and travel as well, becoming secondary projectiles, extending the damage pathway. As well.
0: Blast injuries. There's four
1: phases of injury potential in a blast. We have the primary phase. This is due to the pressure wave. If explosion occurs, that pressure wave is going to hit that patient first. So, that pressure wave is primarily going to affect gas containing organs, such as lungs, stomach, intestines, and the eardrum. It's going to rupture eardrums more than likely. Secondary phase is the flying debris that that pressure wave is also carrying as well. So that pressure wave itself can do damage to us. The debris or shrapnel that that pressure wave is carrying can also make impact with this, causing either penetrating or blunt injury as well. The tertiary phase is due to being thrown. So that pressure wave not only does damage, not only throws stuff at you, but it will throw you as well. So the injuries depend on the distance and point of impact, both penetrating and blunt trauma are possible as you're getting thrown as well. You get thrown into other objects or thrown into the ground. And that fourth phase is the quaternary or the quaternary phase is due to, if it's inside a building, structural collapse. Uh, If the explosion happened and now a hazmat situation that can be exposure to chemicals, toxins, bacteria, metals, or radiation. Again, penetrating your blunt force trauma can occur during this. You also have to worry about burns, illness,
0: and diseases.
1: So there's a picture of the explosion, and you can actually see that pressure wave traveling away from the explosion in the picture. And again, that pressure wave is very fast, so it's going to be picking up small objects and throwing
0: them outward as well. Again, just an example
1: of those for injury. Uh, Primary, the debris right here, shrapnel getting thrown, and then in this case, it was releasing a toxin as well.
0: So dealing with multi-systems trauma
1: patient. Multi-system trauma patient has injuries involving more than one body system, multi-systems. Vast majority of trauma patients that we run on, 90%, it's just a simple or a single injury. Only one body system is is affected by it, and it's a localized injury. Multi-system trauma patients, again, that are multiple systems are involved, have a higher incidence of morbidity
0: and mortality.
1: So if multiple systems are involved, they have a higher incidence of dying. Managing immediate life threats and quick transport are the appropriate care.
0: Use of aeromedical helicopters
1: makes without transport time and allow a more prompt arrival at a medical facility. We'll talk more about that coming up in another chapter. So this is a important thing for us to remember when we're dealing with major trauma patients. The golden period, and the platinum 10 minutes. So the golden period is a parameter for emergency care based on the fact that best chance of survival is when interventions take place as quickly as possible after the injury. And the golden period is based on the time that the injury occurred until the patient is in the operating room. So the, in most major trauma patients, their definitive care, meaning the care that they need in order to survive their trauma, is likely going to be surgical. So when we're talking about the care, we're talking about surgical care. So our focus in many cases is try to get that golden period in the shortest amount of time possible. We want to get these patients to the hospital into surgery as quickly as possible because it's the surgery that's probably going to save their lives. It used to be known as the golden hour back in my day when I was going through this. That's what we called it. But some injuries require less than one hour to definitive care. So the golden period is try to get it as short and and quick as possible. Our role in the golden period is the platinum 10 minutes. The goal is for EMS to provide Providers to limit scene time to 10 minutes or less with severely injured patients. So again, that's why we refer to it as our platinum 10. So major traumas, that is based on the mechanism of injury that we see or based on patient presentation. But if we think this is a major trauma, we have to spend less than 10 minutes on scene. And there is a lot of crap we got to get done in 10 minutes or less on scene. So, but again, that 10 minutes needs to be, we need to really focus on that, treat life threats, package the patient, begin rapid immediate transport to the hospital. So within that 10 minutes, we have to assess the patient, manage immediate life threats, and package or prepare the patient for transport. So again, there's a lot of stuff that we have to get done in that first 10 minutes. Platinum 10 only really applies to major trauma. If it's a more minor trauma, we don't think it's life-threatening, not a significant mechanism of injury. We have more than 10 minutes on scene. 10 minutes or less is for major critical patients. So the following lists are reasons why automatically, if we just note this, we need to spend 10 minutes or less on scene. Any problems with the ABCs? If we're having any problems with the ABCs, the patient's automatically critical, 10 minutes or less on scene. If they're hypoxic, respiratory distress, failure of rest. If we note any, any indications of a skull fracture, flail chest, pneumothorax, hemothorax, pelvic fractures. Two or more proximal long bone fractures, crushed or mangled extremities, major external bleeding, any suspected internal bleeding. Trauma patient with signs and symptoms of shock, <coughs> GCS less than thirteen, altered mental status, seizure brought on by trauma, sensory or motor deficits, penetrating trauma to the head, neck, anterior posterior chest, amputations. Trauma patients with a significant medical history, multi-system trauma, suspected brain injuries or paralysis. Again, based on mechanism of injury or what we find on the patient is gonna dictate whether we have 10 minutes or less on scene. So moving on to the trauma systems. Trauma system exists to provide immediate surgical intervention for critically injured trauma patients. And the, this pertains to hospitals. These hospitals are part of the trauma systems and they are have different levels. The different levels of trauma centers have different levels of capabilities, and the care dramatically reduces morbidity and mortality of patients requiring immediate surgical intervention. So if we know what trauma level the hospital is that we're wanting to transport to, we should know if the patient at that hospital is able to handle the patient or not. So the different levels, we have a level one trauma center. This is the regional trauma center. It manages all types of trauma, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the big differentiation in a lot of times between the level one and the level two trauma center is level one trauma centers have the burn unit. So which hospital in our region is our level one?
0: UMC. So
1: UMC can handle any and all traumas that we can throw at them, including burns. Level two trauma centers, an area trauma center, they can manage the vast majority of trauma with surgical capabilities 24-7. And specifically, I'm talking about our region in Lubbock, Covenant is a level two trauma center. They can handle any trauma that we throw at them except for burns. They don't have the burn unit, so burns need to go to UMC. So again, our main two hospitals, UMC and Covenant, they can handle all trauma except for burns have to go to UMC. We have a level three trauma center, a community trauma center. They have some surgical capabilities. They have trained emergency department personnel. But for level three and level four trauma centers, their primary focus is they're going to get a patient, they're going to stabilize it, and then they're going to send it out to a level two or level one trauma center. And a level four is a trauma facility, small community hospitals with limited capabilities. And again, just like a level three, focuses on stabilizing and transferring. Level four may not have any, may not have surgery
0: available at all in their hospital.
1: So golden principles of pre-hospital trauma care. These, our pre-hospital trauma care apply to all patients who have experienced some type of injury, but especially those with multi-system trauma or critical injuries. So things to note. Again, our safety is still always going to be the most important aspect. Once we get on scene, based on dispatch information, based on what we found, what we see on scene, determine the need for additional resources. If we have multiple patients where one ambulance isn't going to be able to handle it, request additional ambulances. If we need the fire department, police department, whatever that case may be, request those resources early. Determine that mechanism of injury. Again, look at the vehicles, listen to your dispatch information, try to figure out what happened to cause those injuries. Once we get that patient's side, we perform a primary assessment to identify any life-threatening problems with the ABCs. And since we're now dealing with major trauma, in many cases, we are going to have to establish and maintain spine motion restrictions for our patients. Having somebody sit there and hold their head. Airway management, adequate ventilations, and oxygenation are key elements to survival. And remember, now that we are moving on to trauma, our O2 SAT goals are a little bit differently. So, our O2 SATs, our goal is above 95%. And again, remember with trauma, we tend to go straight to non rebreathers breathers and not f- worry about nasal canyons. If there's any major external bleeding, we stop it, take actions to stop it immediately. With trauma victims especially, we have to take steps to maintain body temperature. We dramatically increase the likelihood of permanent disabilities or even death if we allow our trauma patient to become hypothermic. So we have to take steps to warm and keep warm a patient. Splint fractures as appropriate. Full spinal immobilization or following your stop spinal precautions protocol as indicated to do so. Begin rapid transport of a critically injured patient to appropriate facility again within 10 minutes of arrival. So things like full set of vital signs, we are not going to do that on scene. We'll go through airway, we'll estimate breathing roughly, we'll estimate pulse rate by feeling for a pulse, but our full set of auto signs, including blood pressures, those are not done until we are en route to the hospital on major trials. We're not gonna waste the time on scene. Don't forget if the patient's conscious, we still need to obtain history, sample O P Q R S T, whatever whatever's relevant. Secondary assessment to identify all other injuries and manage those according to patient priority, how much time we have left
0: before we get to the hospital. Some special consideration for trauma patients. When we assess, we do
1: so in a rapid, organized manner. And again, surgery is the definitive care. It's what the patient needs to survive. So it's rapid transport, of sirens, 10 minutes on scene or less is essential to
0: survival of a severely injured patient.
1: Backboards can serve as temporary splits and unstable splints in unstable trauma patients. We'll talk more about this once we get into trauma uh, uh, problems. And it's very important that we do a good, thorough assessment and do not get tunnel vision on one specific injury, just because it looks dramatic or bad. And oftentimes it's not the dramatic injuries that are gonna kill the patient, it's, the more, it's those injuries that have more of a subtle presentation that will sneak up and kill the patient. So do not get tunnel vision, make sure we do a complete thorough head to toe assessment. So in summary, assess the mechanism of injuries, helps predict potential injuries, Mass and velocity are the determinants of kinetic energy, and remember it's velocity that plays the larger fact is the larger factor. Trauma can be blunt force injuries or penetrating injuries. And high velocity weapons are particularly prone to producing massive bodily injuries. Your trauma systems exist to allow rapid surgical intervention for severely injured patients. Trauma triage criteria help determine which patient should be transported to a
0: trauma center. We'll talk a little bit more about that in future chapters as well. Okay, any questions over